the sermon title of The Gift of Encouragement. I've been watching the Olympics. One thing that my wife and I love to do is watch the Olympics. And, and I'm a sports fan. I mean, I love sports. Love it, love it. However, with the Olympics, I like the stories better than the Olympics. You know how they break away and they tell you something about the athlete or how they got there or family turmoil or some kind of story. And I, I just love it when they do that because it's always so fascinating. They do such a great job. The, the story that I heard that I love so much this time was about the attacking Vikings. It's about the downhill ski team from Norway. If you look this up, I may not have all my facts right because I'm just giving it to you from memory. So anyway, about 1990, before that, they hadn't been getting any medals. They were not doing very well as a, as a ski team at all. They, they were, I, I guess you could just say they were failing. So in 1990, they redefined themselves and they named themselves the Attacking Vikings. And what this meant was, from this point forward, they were going to work as a team. Everything was about being a team. So they trained together, they slept together, they ate together, they encouraged one another, they talked to each other about weaknesses or when you were sloughing off. And they even went so far as when you're in a competition, when one, one Viking or one person from Norway would uh, ski to the bottom of the hill, they would then get on the radio and radio back up to the other team members and tell them the conditions of the slope or anything that might help them. And the reason they did this, because it wasn't about any individual winning a medal. It was about the team winning medals. And when they started doing this, man, they have dominated downhill skiing ever since then. Church family, I'm just saying, if we can be about doing what we do as a church for the glory of God, we can do so much more than we can do individually. We need to, we need to hear the story of the attacking Vikings and be like that and encourage one another to be like that because it's so important. I want to introduce this passage today, and the, the passage is in Hebrews 10. In our, in our passage today, I, I didn't really know this when I began studying, but this is my assessment of the passage we move from the intricate to the very simple. And when I say intricate, I'm not talking about complex, hard to understand where you just can't get it. But I am saying there is uh, a lot in these first five verses that we're talking about today. There's a lot of information in these five, first five verses. In these first five verses, in my opinion, you could take the whole entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and put them inside that. You can put them inside that first five verses and pretty much explain the Bible from that point forward. And we're going to look at that. But just to get this in context for you, because we're going to be looking at a New Testament passage in Hebrews 10, when we look at the Old Testament, I think this just helps us understand our, our passage as a whole. Some people say that Old Testament is very, very hard to understand. Let me see if I can simplify that. The Old Testament is looking for the answer for sin all the way through. They're looking for the answer. And they do, they keep looking, keep looking. So whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the judges, the kings, um, 
what the prophets, whatever it is, they're looking for the answer for sin, and there's never an answer for sin in the Old Testament, at least not a final answer for sin. They offer a sacrifice, and they get forgiveness of sin, then they have to offer another sacrifice, and they get forgiveness of sin. And so they're looking for that answer through the whole Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, and we get Jesus. And that is the once for all answer for sin. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just and the unjust, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. So we get that one-time answer in the New Testament for the problem of sin. So these seven verses compressed, let's just take a look at them this morning. If you don't mind, let's stand as we read the Word of God. And I'm reading Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And be seated. Let's pray together, and we're going to take a look at this passage. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for blessing us in so many ways and having the opportunity to look at this. We're so thankful for the Old Testament sacrificial system that revealed so much about you coming forward. And we're so thankful for you who died on the cross for us that we might know you in a personal way. God, be with us today as we look at this passage. We pray that it communicates, and Father, that you change lives even this morning. Not from words that I might say, but because of your word. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look at this. Uh, I'm just going to give you some basic principles from the first five verses, and then I'm going to take a, a, another passage so that you can understand this even better. So, in, six, in, in 10.19, we can't miss the invitation to go into the Holy of Holies. This is, guys, this is big. I mean, what he offers us in 1019, in many ways, is completely unbelievable. Let's look at it. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to go into the holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place that you could never go in the Old Testament because it was only one person that got to go in there. Here, he's given you an invitation. Every person here has an invitation to meet with Jesus. He goes on to say that he is the great high priest. And we know that there was only one high priest uh, that got to go into the Holy of Holies. And, but it's saying in the New Testament that Jesus is our high priest. It says in 22, 
How do we, uh, we ask the question in 22, how do we move towards God? So in 22, listen, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. In 23, it tells us how to hold fast the confession of my hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is faithful to deliver on all the promises that he gives us as our high priest. I want to share a story with you that kind of communicates the Old Testament so you can see just how important this invitation to enter into the Holy of Holies, this holy uh, relationship with Jesus. And I, to do this, I want you to picture a Moabite man living in biblical times up on a mountain, looking down upon the nation of Israel, and he sees the tabernacle down there. He sees the tabernacle, and he wants to investigate. Now, for us, you can easily insert your place, uh, yourself into the Moabite place. We're Gentiles. We wouldn't be able to go into the tabernacle either. We're not Israelites. So as, you, as I read this story, just kind of insert yourself into place. But he goes down, and he sees the linen, and he looks up, and he, and he starts going around the tabernacle. And he comes to the main gate, and he says, may I go in there, pointing to the gate where the bustle of activity is going on in the tabernacle. The gatekeeper looks at him and says, who are you? Knowing that any Israelite would just know that, that they could go inside, they would just go inside. So he knows something's up. And he says, I'm a Moabite. The stranger replies, well, says the man at the gate, I'm very sorry, but you cannot go in there. It is not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part of worship in Israel. The Moabite looks sad. What should I have to do to go in there? He insists. You would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. You have to be born an Israelite. You would have to be born of the tribe of Judah perhaps, or the tribe of Benjamin or Dan. I wish I'd been born of, I wish I'd been born an Israelite of one of the tribes of Israel, the Moabite says, as he looks more closely. He sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice go into the tabernacle's interior. What's in there, asked the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, says the gatekeeper, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside there's a room containing a lampstand, a table, an altar of God. The man you saw is a priest. He will trim a lamp, eat the bread upon the table, and burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. Ah, says the man of Moab, I wish I were an Israelite so that I could do that. I should love to worship God in that holy place and help to trim the lamp to offer him some incense, and to eat at that table. Oh no, says the man at the gate. Even I could not do that. To worship in the holy place, one must be not only born an Israelite, one must be born, born of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. I wish, he says, that I had been born of Israel of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. Gazing wistfully at the temple, at the closed tabernacle door, he says, 
What else is in there? There's a veil, replies the informant. It is a beautiful veil, I'm told, which divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is where we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Moabite is more interested than ever. What is the holy of holies? There's a sacred chest in there called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains certain holy memorials of our past. Its top is made of gold, and we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the golden cherubim. You see that pillar of cloud hovering over the, temp over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a look of sadness on the face of the man from Moab. Oh, he says, if only I were a priest. I should love to go into the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship him there in the beauty of holiness. Oh, no, says the man at the gate. You couldn't even do that even if you were a priest. To enter the most holy place, you'd have to be the high priest of Israel. Only he can go in there. Nobody else. Only he. The Moabite's heart yearns once more. Oh, he cries. If only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. If only I had been born the high priest, I would go in there into the Holy of Holies. I would go in there every day. I would go in three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. The gatekeeper looks at him again and once again shakes his head. Oh no, he says. You couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year. And then only after the most elaborate of preparations. And even then, for only a little while, sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope in all the world of ever entering there. So you see, when Jesus offers us an invitation to enter, it carries forth all this Old Testament, all this stuff, all this where the priest had to enter for you, and now Jesus is saying, come to me. John Phillips writes, this is the great reality of the Christian faith. It is a reality which Judaism, at its brightest and best, never dreamed. This is the wonderful world of welcome extended, extended to us. Come into the Holy of Holies. There's a, other translations that translate 1019 for us and they use lots of different words therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus the new american standard says therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holy holiest by the blood of jesus in the new king james it says therefore brethren since we have full freedom and confidence to enter the holy of holies by the power and virtue in the blood of jesus and in the amplified version it says so, friends, we can now, without hesitation, walk right up to God into the holy place. And what I'm saying to you this morning, don't take that for granted. The opportunity we have to fellowship with Jesus is really 
nothing short of miraculous. Jesus left heaven, lived on earth as a man, died on the cross, rose again so that we can share this relationship with him. And we shouldn't take that for granted. And these five verses are taking the whole Old Testament, New Testament, kind of compressing them together. So we see the Old Testament sacrificial system, the New Testament death of Jesus on the cross, so that we can fellowship with him. So that's a, not, a, not a complicated passage, but an intricate passage to kind of show us. And when I studied this passage, the thing that I loved about it most was you took this intricate section that dealt with a lot of stuff and put it all together, and you had that, and it put it right beside two verses that are very, very easy to understand. Two verses that we can't miss. In Hebrews 10, 24, it says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Before I start on the gift of encouragement, I want to share with you what criticism is. We looked at what we have in the New Testament versus what the Old Testament sacrificial system demanded. Let's look at criticism before we jump into encouragement. I'm going to give you four things. Criticism is all criticism always comes when we least need it. You ever notice that? Every time criticism comes at a point when you're vulnerable, comes at a point where you least need it. Criticism seems to come when we least deserve it. You know, that seems like it's always true. Criticism comes from people who are least qualified to give it. And then criticism frequently comes in a form that is least helpful to us. Those two things, those four things are true about criticism. So let me offer some free advice here. If you don't really know the person you're getting ready to criticize, or if you're not fully apprised of all the facts, just pass up the opportunity to provide criticism. Just pass it up. Uh, begin with knowing somebody, loving somebody. In Hebrews, in, in uh, Proverbs, it says, faithful are, the wounds, are, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And then it says, faithful are the bruises caused by the wounding of one who loves you. That's the people we want to get information from, those that love us. And so this morning, I want to take these simple things, uh, one of which is not, don't forsake the assembling together. And I want to applaud you guys for being here today because you are doing the very thing it talks about. You are here assembling together. And so before that, it says, let us consider how. So when we talk about let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, you know, that's what's something we need to think about. How do I encourage others? How do I help them move forward in their Christian life? How do I help them do that? So, I brought something with me today. This is my box of encouragement. Pop the top off. Let me tell you about some of the things inside here. The stuff inside here, the encouragement inside here, is not like my bank account. I could give you guys my bank account, and y'all could distribute it out pretty quick. The encouragement 
that's inside here, however, you can just keep giving it out. And I promise you, this box will never run dry, ever. You just keep sowing encouragement to your heart's content. And I promise you will not run out of it. So, don't apply liberally, apply generously. This morning I thought about sharing with you uh, Greek definitions of encouragement and giving you Bible verses about encouragement and telling you all the things it says, but encouragement is very, really very, very personal. It is something that impacts you. And so I want to share with you a couple of examples from my life where people have encouraged me mightily. And if I was dividing in my life into two sections, I probably, if I could only pick two areas, I'd probably have a baseball section and a Jesus section. And when I say a Jesus section, I'm not saying like, man, I have been so holy my whole life. Y'all need to follow me and do everything I've ever done. I'm saying no. I'm saying I've struggled. I've looked at things. I've tried to figure out where to go. Uh, nothing has been, you know, just like just flowing out of me. So don't, don't think I'm saying it like that. I'm saying i got to figure out what Jesus wants me to do. And so that's very, very important. So encouragement is very, very personal. I, I want to share with you the baseball section first. Uh, when I was at Western Kentucky, a lot of you know I played baseball at Western. And in 1985, I set a record for saves. I had nine saves, which at that time, and for 15 years, stood as the, the number one record or the, the best record for saves at Western. You know, anytime we accomplish something in our life, there's usually other things that go with it. And so everything is not always at the top. Let me share with you, and I know that some of you all will get these better than others, but let me share, you some, share with you some of the things in my baseball career. In American Legion, I once pitched a seven-inning game. That's 21 outs. I struck out 19 and either hit or walked 16. Man, that's bad. You're talking about my infielders? They had to be asleep. There was two balls hit to them the entire game. And if I wasn't striking somebody out, I'll either hit them or walk them. This is one of my favorites. Uh, I made a mistake of sharing this with Kevin Ezell, who was my pastor at the time, and now he's president of the North American Mission Board. But when I shared it with Kevin, that was a big mistake because I still meet people that go, yeah, Kevin told me about you. You're the guy that lost both games of a doubleheader and only pitched two-thirds of an inning, <laughs> which is true. And so you say, how do you do that? You baseball fans already have it figured out. But the first game I went out to pitch, I couldn't get anybody out to save my life. I think I hit the first three guys and, and gave up a walk. And so Coach just came out and he goes, Ed, give me the ball. You haven't got it this game. We'll start you the next game. So I left that game not getting a single person out. And then I started the next game. I got two people out. Couldn't get the third out to save my life. And coach took me out of that one. And so I was losing in both games when I went out. So I got the loss in both games and didn't even pitch a full inning. Uh, Anthony Stallings was in the 
first service, and, and he has worked for Atmos Energy, and he invited me up to their box the other night. It was really fun, lots of food, so it was really good. But his boss is my center fielder from high school, one of the reasons he invited me. And so he knows Kevin and I's relationship, Kevin Dobbs. And so Kevin and I played high school baseball together, and so he told Kevin I was coming. The first words out of Kevin's mouth was, I hope he doesn't hit me. And he wasn't talking about with a fist. He was talking about with a baseball. Because I just had no control all through high school. And so my point here is, we may do something well. We may get to a place where we do something well. But there's all kinds of struggles along the way. And we have to have people that encourage us. Uh, We have to. In my life, my encouragers along the way, my mom and dad, they drove me everywhere. My gosh, they practices, Little League, American Legion, all the way through. They drove me everywhere. But there was another guy. His name's Buddy Forshee. Buddy, I actually called him and invited him to come because he's always telling me to call him sometime when I'm going to preach, and he'll come. So he was actually here in the first service, and I'm telling you, I could barely talk about him without getting choked up because he means so much to my life. Uh, he, I, I, I've told you my struggles in high school at American Legion, trying to get the ball across the plate, and I wanted to play baseball bad. But Buddy was always there to encourage me. He pulled me aside one time at a basketball game. I didn't play my senior year, and he pulled me aside and said, you know, just say to yourself all the time, I can throw strikes, I can throw strikes, I can throw strikes. And so he just always encouraged me, always helped me. And his love of the game of baseball just really helped me to the place where I could finally get somewhere where I could begin to, to flourish. Uh, when I got to Western, you know, most of, I told you I played there. Um, I, I didn't get a scholarship. I walked on. Uh, nobody, <laughs> nobody wanted me. So I said, well, I'll go find a place to play. So I walked on and, and earned a scholarship. But when I got there, I was just trying to make the team. And there was a guy there, a graduate assistant coach, pitching coach, by the name of Fred Tremalgia. Lives in Connecticut now. Fred would get behind me when I was warming up to go in, and he would say, nobody can touch that pitch. If you throw that pitch right there, nobody can hit it. And he would get me so pumped up going to the games, and I believed him so much that when I went in, I did well. I threw strikes. I got people out because it was Fred. Those people in my life made all the difference in the world spiritually you know i talked about the other section of my life jesus uh my pastor in when i was in high school was a guy named wilbur powell uh brother powell he would catch me at church picnics just just trying to be involved in my life just very important and then when i got to college there was a guy by the name of pete walters some of you guys probably know pete played football at western he was a great encourager to me. He used to write notes and put them in my box. You know, it'd be a Bible verse or a great, great quote from somebody, and he'd just slot it in my box, and, and when I pulled it out, it'd be such encouragement. And we would go to conferences together, and we'd work out together. He was playing football, I was playing baseball, and my, you know, Pete was a football player. My workout was taking off his weights. This guy benched. There was a guy here earlier that played football with Pete, and he told me he saw him bench 565 pounds. So my workout was taking off all those plates to get down to something I could manage just to be with him, but Pete put up with that. 
He, he wanted to be with me. He encouraged me, wrote me notes, took me to conferences, prayed with me, prayed for me. You talk about somebody important in my life. It was him. Uh, he was a great guy and a normal guy. Uh, Pete's famous for going out to beach men and beating up a bear. There was a bear out there. They had with a muzzle on it. And uh, Pete uh, took down the bear and pinned him. This is how massive this guy was. But, but man, a soft-hearted, great guy, incredible encourager. Uh, took my life, saw something in me, and just continued to help me. We have a mission statement over here that says, develop relationships to impact people with biblical answers to life's challenges. You know, my question to you all today is, who are you developing a relationship with so that you can encourage? You, no doubt, are the most important person in somebody's life. That somebody needs you. We look at our values, the power of God's word, the pursuit of life transformation, the passion of missional living, the priority of authentic relationships. You can't name one of those things that does not deal with encouragement. Encouragement is the fuel that makes us move forward in our life. Encouragement to believe that we can accomplish something. Encouragement to help us sometimes just to take the next step. You all have those people in your life. Uh, you have them. And this morning, as part of the invitation, in my box of encouragement, I have brought a gift for you. What I have is cards because those people that have encouraged us need encouragement. Those people that we need to encourage need a word of encouragement. So, you know, either we need to encourage the encouragers or we need to encourage those people that God's put in our life. And so what I've done is brought cards. And I'm, what I'm asking you to do is come get a card. And for that person, either the encourager or the person that you need to encourage to fill out this card and send it to them or give it to them. Because we're all far too guilty of speaking encouragement to somebody else, but not actually to the person that needs to hear it. For example, I see Gary and Kim Richmond and I'm just picking them out of the crowd. Gary could know somebody here that really needs his encouragement. And he tells Kim how great an accomplishment they did or you know, something about them that he really admires or any number of things. He could share that with somebody else but with encouragement, like I told you in the very beginning of this message, encouragement is highly personable. It's so personal that if we don't give it to the person that we're thinking about, it almost goes to waste. So instead of just thinking about somebody and something they do or 
believing somebody does a great job and not tell them, I'm asking you this morning just to come and get a card, fill that card out, and send it to them. Because encouragement has to be direct. Encouragement has to be given. This morning, I don't know where you are spiritually. We talked about the sacrificial system, and we talked about what Jesus has done for us. He has given us an invitation to enter into a relationship with him. Not to go through the tribe of Israel and through the priest and through the high priest and the once a year. What he has asked you to do is to come to him daily. He has offered you that invitation. I can't tell you how much I urge you not to take that for granted. It is an invitation like no other. So I'm about to pray. And so I don't know what you need to do. I don't know if you need to join the church. I don't know if you need to write somebody a card and tell them that you love them or you thank them. I don't know if you need to send somebody a card that needs your encouragement. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is you need to do. But Jesus has offered you an invitation to come directly to him. And I want to urge you to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the music we've heard today and how it stirs our heart. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the encouragement that you've given to me, how you've blessed in so many ways. God, we pray today that if there's people here that need to come get a card to send to somebody or thank somebody, that they won't hesitate to do that, that they will come and get that and, and bless that person's life. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us of our sin. And God, I just pray that you bless each and every person here, that you put people in their lives to encourage and you help them see people that they need to encourage. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.